Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and right around Australia, on the Community Radio Network. Each week, we take a closer look at the numbers that make up the news. This program was made possible with the assistance of the University of Technology Sydney Business School. When I first moved to Sydney for uni, one of the first questions I was inevitably asked was, where did you go to school? Now, for the uninitiated, it's a baffling question, but school choice plays such a big role in how an individual is perceived. Consider that non-government education has doubled in size over the last 30 years, predominantly discussed in the media as being the large legacy schools in state capitals, but also filled out as a sector by smaller Catholic and independent institutions. Federal government funding for these schools has long been a contentious issue. This past week, the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age revealed that the largest 50 independent schools in the country have only increased their worth in the last four years, but also that some of these schools have built up multi-million dollar investment portfolios. From January 1 next year, the funding model for non-government schools will shift from being based around the average wealth and occupations in the area of the school to a direct measure of income model based around parents' median taxable income. For some schools, this means more money on the table, but for others, there is less to go around. The other side of this equation, of course, is how this fits with the money apportioned for those in the public education system, which is something that also needs to be considered. To discuss this further, I was joined earlier by Glenn Faye, Research Fellow at the Centre for Independent Studies, and Associate Professor Jane Hunter from the University of Technology Sydney School of Education in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. I'll start this episode, first of all, um, by asking you, Glenn, if you wouldn't mind explaining to both uh, myself and the wider audience, how is private education funded in Australia? Okay, so I think we have to start at the, the very beginning. So we have two different types of schools in Australia, non-government and government schools. And we've got two different types, primarily of public funding, and that's recurrent funding. This is about the uh, running costs of schools, day-to-day running of schools. It's, it's largely about human capital there because we're talking mostly about the staffing costs that, that uh, the schools have. And the other, the other major form is called capital funding. And that's really all about infrastructure and the physical capital that goes into uh, maintaining schools. So when we talk about areas of public and private funding, it's important that we start with that basis because that feeds into different responsibilities, particularly from uh, federal governments and states and territories, because they both play different roles when it comes to funding those two different sources. Uh, And also there's a a mixture in there with parents' contributions in fees, uh, which are also uh, which also feed right into that um, into those two different forms in different ways. So there's two, and, and when we get into discussions about funding, really what we're talking about are two versions of uh, what are often called school funding wars. The first of those really is is dictated by 
the concerns about recurrent funding inequities and the need for needs-based recurrent funding arrangements. And this has really been focused on the discussion around Gonski school funding for really the last decade. The other of those is really about the discussion around infrastructure and, and infrastructure inequities between schools. And that's really all about capital funding. And so both of those have really come to a head very much in, in, uh, in the last few days in, in discussions about uh, the new, new revisions to the school funding formula that uh, related to what's called the new direct measure of income form of school funding for non-government schools. And also the discussions about uh, the assets of our, uh, our largest non-government schools in Australia. So for our, for our business school audiences, you can think about those as kind of your income statement concerns and your balance sheet concerns respectively. Uh, before we get into the new funding arrangements and uh, what's been making the press recently, I just want to go back to that watchword of Gonski, because it is something that has kind of permeated discussions around uh, education funding and education policy over the last uh, at least 10 years. Uh, and I was just wondering if uh, one of you felt uh, able to just clarify a bit more what is wound up in that single word? What is, what are the meanings? Gonski, I guess um, it came out of a lot of research and work around the inequities that existed and large scale research that was done in various parts of Australia, New South Wales that really um, identified that there were significant areas for reform in terms of more money into, certainly into public schools and those very low um, fee paying Catholic schools, for example. Um, so it is a needs-based funding model and it is a model that I guess many people, particularly those who um, from the Gonski Institute, other university uh, universities, um, academics and so on, whose research has largely been in those areas would say that it has not necessarily been implemented in the way that Gonski envisioned. Right. So, uh, Glenn, you said earlier that uh, we're starting to see revisions to uh, the funding approach to uh, private schools. Can you elaborate on that a bit further? Yeah, so a recommendation from the National School Resourcing Board a few years ago was to review the, the way that uh, the school funding model assesses the contribution that parents make when it comes to non-government schools. And the the critical element that, that was sought to change there was effectively moving from what's called an area-based SES model to a direct measure of income approach. And what that means is that typically when we've looked at the way to resource non-government schools, we, we public funding acts as a subsidy in effect for, um, uh, so a taxpayer subsidy lowers the fees that would normally be paid by parents to, um, to enroll children at school. Their degree of that subsidy has typically been determined by an area-based model. So based upon the area of a school, it would just determine uh, the degree of the subsidy. So basically if you happen to reside or enroll in, sorry, if you happen to enroll at a school more correctly, that was in a, a more privileged area, for instance, then the subsidy available and therefore the fees that were pay, payable uh, would, would, would uh, change in a, according from one school to another. What's different in this measure is that instead of looking at the area on which a school is based or in some models which looked at instead 
the area, some alternatives which are the area in which parents are based. Uh, the direct measure is actually about assessing the actual capacity to contribute of individual parents based on the median income of, of uh, parents in a school. Now that's, that's important because it means that you can improve the allocation of that subsidy. Uh, and now it doesn't mean it's perfect. Now there, there's certainly a few blind spots when it comes to the direct measure of income. And that's because the median income of parents in a school doesn't necessarily translate to the circumstances of individual parents in a school. So the, the greater the, the differentiation of income in a school, the, the more imprecise that subsidy is in effect. Uh, you've also got an issue that particularly these days, the subsidy available to parents, uh, or the subsidy of that's made available through the direct measure doesn't necessarily match with the actual contributions that, pa that parents make. And that's because a lot of the time contributions are supported by other family members or through scholarships and the like that, that allow for, or through savings, or all kinds of arrangements. I mean, these days, funding for school fees can come from other financing arrangements. It, it can be actually quite a complicated piece. Uh, but I suppose finally, the, the other issue on that is that parental income is not always a good proxy of, of socioeducational advantage. And so it, the classic example is some of our regional schools where parents may, come, may have quite high incomes, particularly temporarily. And so examples of that are our, our areas that are impacted by mining revenue. So in that case, parents may have quite high uh, incomes for a period of time, but that doesn't necessarily translate to uh, sort of educational advantage in the traditional sense. So that does uh, result in some changes compared to how, uh, how that subsidy is currently calculated. Jane, if I can turn to you, we've seen though over, even though we're seeing this change in how the funding is apportioned, we've also seen work, uh, in particular, I'm thinking of work done by Trevor Cobble, which suggests that over the last 10 years, the Commonwealth government's increased funding per private school student as part of the Commonwealth state uh, arrangements by 22%, as opposed to uh, sorry, compared to uh, only 2.4% for public schools. So we're seeing a nearly 10 times increase uh, in funding that the Commonwealth government gives for uh, private school students as opposed to public schools. Even, even if we are seeing, you know, some of these uh, smaller schools, these uh, independent ca or Catholic schools uh, receiving less money. Do you think that uh, the mix is right given the state of public education? Um, look, this, in my mind, is a long overdue reform. I mean, we, we talk about Gonski, you know, over the last decade, but really the great inequities in our system really started in the 1980s when we um, school choice became an option. And so we, uh, through various Commonwealth allocations, small schools popped up everywhere. So really we have a lot of bespoke schools that are really asking for a slice of the pie. There are um, the resources in those schools, um, the, the expectation of when a school starts up that parents are paying money. So they're, you know, they, the brand of the school is really important. And so they want to see value for money. But by the same token, when I do go into um, in disadvantaged public schools, and I'm particularly speaking about New South Wales here, the, the resourcing gap is enormous. And I just don't think that in um, 2021 that we can morally 
keep giving the sorts of funds um, to independent schools that we have in the past. I wonder um, over time what is going to be the outcome of the lack of money into public schools and to public education. For example, in the recent STEM research that I've done in 14 public schools in New South Wales, disadvantaged schools largely, um, where they were scraping together money for, um, you know, STEM kits or just to build, you know, scale models, for example, and had to dismantle them when one class used them so that the next class you could use them is okay when we have schools like Melbourne Grammar, for example, that have just built a $30 million five-storey tech hub. I understand the point that Glenn was making around, you know, some years, um, in rural areas, you know, miners, farmers, their their crops, their 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 um, minerals, and um, bear fruit. But in in other in other years, it's much more lean. Well, that also could be said about people who live in urban areas, in the poorer areas. The work is on sometimes. I get lots of shifts, and then other years or other months, I don't get any. So, it's um. I think that median income as a way of measuring and allocating funds is going to be a lot fairer. Uh, Glenn, you have uh, suggested that uh, the DMI method could be also applied to public schools. Do you think that is something that might uh, smooth out these inequities that Jane's been talking about? Well, if we're, if we're serious about national consistency and, and Gonski was a conversation about having a nationally consistent funding model, the first thing you'd need to do, of course, is to ensure that you don't um, unfairly disadvantage non-government schools. So our government schools don't have any assessment. It's assumed effectively that no fees are paid when, it, when assessing the public funding available to government schools. But that same, uh, but that same benefit doesn't apply to non-government schools. So in effect, if you had two similarly disadvantaged schools a government school will, will receive more funding than a non-government school. And in some respects, that's, that's, that's a, not a bad outcome, but in others, it, it, it suggests that there is actually an inequity and it's uh, unfairly balanced against non-government schools. Now, as far as the argument goes about uh, the level of infrastructure available at one school compared to another, you need to, you need to remember that public funds don't contribute to infrastructure of our elite schools. So the anecdotal comparisons that are often made, uh, you know, it might, might be important in a personal context, but they don't reflect the wider policy across the majority of our schools. The fact that there's been increases in funding from the federal government is not a sign that there's a privilege to non-government schools. It's a sign that the federal government is following the commitments it made in inter intergovernmental agreements, but states haven't actually followed, haven't followed suit. And because states are the primary funder of government schools, it's wrong to be shaking our head at the federal government here because the federal government has also increased its commitment to government schools as part of, uh, as part of the Gonski formula. It's, it's our state governments that we need to point the finger at. Absolutely. Uh, there is obviously the state role in the public sector, but there's also, you know, the federal government has, you know, the capital grants program, which provides this capital funding to uh, improve school facilities that uh, was estimated to total $67 million for independent schools over 2020. Like, it, it, even if this isn't the same as Melbourne grammar, there is still uh, government 
money going towards the building of facilities uh, in uh, independent and uh, Catholic schools? The, the assessment of capital grants is very, very stringent. So public funds do not go to building a, a wellness centre at an elite school, right? If, if elite schools want to spend, you know, uh, many, many millions in, in some cases on facilities around the school, that is not something that comes out of public funds. Any public funds that do go to infrastructure go through quite a, quite a sophisticated process if it turns out parents want to fund a wellness center and you know a, a day spa in a school, you know at the end of the day that, that's a matter for the parents of that school and and their choices. Over the past week, we have seen the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age publish a series of reports regarding how, uh, for one thing, the worth and value of the top fifty private schools in Australia has only grown in the past uh, four years between twenty fifteen and twenty nineteen. But but also that some of these schools, such as for example Scotch College down in uh, Melbourne have uh, still been receiving uh, a, a modicum of government funding, but also have amassed quite an investment portfolio that have been um, uh, trading shares and have also amassed, uh, have been buying corporate debt in some instances. Do you think that that's appropriate, that there is some uh, public subsidy going to private schools like this when they are amassing a portfolio of shares and of corporate debt? Yeah, they're, they're different. They're different pots of they're different pots of money. You can't you can't actually compare those two things. If it turns out that that um, the schools are sitting on an asset base that they choose to invest, and it, and this is overseen by boards, and in and some of these schools, there these these um, investment decisions are actually overseen by incredibly um, experienced um, members of the finance community that 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 oversee those investments and. And you know, if they happen to be making money off investments because the markets are doing well, that in no way takes away from any other school. Um, so, you know, I the other, yeah. Can I just a, um, just to, to make a a number of points? I think you can't. I mean, look. I mean, you've got schools, for example, like Shaw School in Sydney has something like five hundred and forty three million dollars of assets, and. I think that you can, I mean, yes, they might be capital, whether they're not, um, you know, out of their building fund, they school paid for them and that. But the thing is that in, in, within public schools, uh, um, there isn't, for example, the marketing expertise. There are not bursas that the schools are able to employ to look at the tax breaks and all of these sorts of things. So historically, um, uh, public schools have really been on the back foot here and just simply haven't had the funds to do those sorts of things. So over a very long period of time then, um, a lot of independent schools, those wealthy um, sandstone independent schools, if you like, have built up um, their portfolio. Herons, unfortunately, do look at those, what I would call the more superficial aspects of their decision-making about where to send their child. And that goes back to my point earlier about the choice factor. I know that I have colleagues who are in those small independent Catholic schools and they are screaming that they won't have the money and so on. And they're an independent school and, and their, their local public school is going to get more money. Well, I'm sorry, that's okay because the public sector educates more children and they take children from all walks of life. Whereas the independent schools are in a much better position to not necessarily take those children. And so my, I guess what I've seen in my work over many decades now 
is yes, it may well be that they can't spend those money on the assets and so on, but how that plays out in classrooms with teachers, with students in terms of time and um, what they're able to access does make a difference to the quality of the educational experience. You know, I, I was concurrently running a series of um, research projects in New South Wales disadvantaged public schools. And at the same time, I was also doing a, a project with the AIS in Victoria. And you couldn't have been in two totally contrasting situations. And for me, those disparities and how they play out on the ground and parents want the best for their child and they want their child to have the slick school uniform. They want them to have the 50, 50 metre um, swimming pool. They want them to be able to go up to the, you know, and utilise the five storeys in the tech hub at their child's school. It, 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 it's a, a, the more that um, when somebody like myself, for example, who has a very, you know, four decades of experience, believe they only know a tiny bit about education because the complexities of the context of school, rural, remote, Indigenous and so on are just something that the average punter knows very little about. You raised some uh, really interesting points there, Jane. Uh, in particular, I, I just want to talk um, to the, the, the notion of the fees aspect and how this relates to a quality of education element. You know, Futurity Investments Group's planning for education index earlier this year suggested that, for example, 13 years of independent schooling in Sydney would cost nearly uh, $450,000. Now, that's been disputed by the Independent Schools Association, but do you think that cost can be equated to a quality of education that uh, surpasses what's available in, say, the public sector? What that buys you is a whole lot of networks, Toby. And so it's not just about the educational experience. I mean, my work over the last... 40 years shows that really 95% of teachers in schools across all sectors, the wealthiest, and I've done work in those schools, and I've also done work in, in our poorest, lowest performing schools. Uh, the, the most innovative environments actually are in Southwest Sydney schools. And, the, and I say that because those teachers have very little to work with and yet they are required to teach some extremely challenging students. And so they have, by their own, by the very nature of the context that they find themselves in, um, have had to innovate and teach in ways that are not textbook driven. So in saying that lots of money buys you the best education, that's certainly not what I've seen nor experienced. It means that you buy the old school network you have access to places and spaces that um, many children from um, rural and remote schools would find difficult to access. And you also have those ongoing alumni networks that um, can make a difference with regard to what happens once you leave school. Uh, Glenn, uh, same question to you. Do you think that uh, such an amount is necessarily a good investment in terms of the quality of education? Well, parents are free to make the, the, that decision about fees. It's a personal decision that each family makes. And I don't think we should kind of be sanctimonious about those choices that they make either. 
Um, so if parents want if parents want to to tip him, you know, 450k, then then, then so be it. Um, and, and I'm glad we're on a Unity ticket. And you know, in terms of the, um, the that money doesn't actually necessarily buy a greater education. I mean, once you take into account initial uh, socioeconomic background and all the factors that go into schools, the amount of funding makes really little difference. And and which kind of brings us back to the discussion that we're having here that. You know, we're, we're very much caught up in changes in funding, but, you know, it turns out that the evidence is really clear that the amount of funding itself actually is not a big, not a big driver of, of student outcomes. The, the difference in building quality, for instance, has got little to do with the difference in teaching quality. And that's something that, that you know, we, we can agree on, that the big driver is differences in teaching quality. Look, there is no difference in teacher quality in independent and non, you know, in government and non-government schools. Um, the quali quality of the teaching is what counts. And it's uh, and what you actually find you can have, and I, I, I think a lot of the work that Gore and Ladwick did, for example, and the work that was done in the, um, in, in the um, early 2000s, when you actually, in that large research project that came out of QUT was to actually show that, it was uh, not so much the differences between schools, it was the difference between classrooms. And so it's, it's the nature of the quality of the teaching as opposed to the teachers. And so as you would know at the moment, there's a whole, um, Tudge's uh, minister is, is keen to point the finger at teacher education. Teacher education is, is moving along quite nicely. 95% of teachers are extraordinary. And I was actually privy to a conversation just this morning, in fact, about parents who were, whose children are obviously at independent schools were talking about the fact that they pay all this money and yet they don't feel that they're getting value for money because the teachers are not as good as XYZ school, public school nearby. So I guess there's a level, yes, that's an anecdote, but there is a level of perception um, around, you know, what schools should and shouldn't do. You know, the classroom is a highly complex space and it's just not a one size fits all situation. Every child in Australia should have access to great teachers and to great schools, and it shouldn't be determined by your postcode. That's all for today's panel. Thank you so much to my guests, Glenn Fay and Associate Professor Jane Hunter. You can catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. I'll catch you back here next week for another deep dive into the numbers that make up the news.